I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Don't forget, this weekend, it's the Dads and Grads Sale. 50% off all golf clubs in stock at Bitterman's. Dads, a day on the links refreshes the senses and gets you ready for another week of unrelenting and never-ending work. Four. Grads, you too will love these golf clubs, I guess. Even though they'll just sit in your closet because you're backpacking all summer in Europe, aren't you? Well, I guess you could take them, but it costs money to golf, so I don't see how that's going to work. Anyway, don't forget, Bitterman's Dads and Grad Sale this weekend. 10 to 30% off on all lawnmowers in stock. Dads, your lawn will be the pride of the neighborhood with the B&R 5000 <laughs> riding lawnmower. Grads, you'll love it too. Ah, uh, who are we kidding? Do you even know what a lawnmower is? When was the last time you mowed the yard? closest you've gotten to the yard in the last year is waking up on it. It's impossible to mow it when there are beer cans strewn all over it. Isn't that right, Gabe? So remember, Bitterman's Dads and Grads sale. This weekend, 20% off on our entire stock of barbecues. Because that's exactly what I want to be doing. Roasting weenies while you're off exposing yours to every Euro trash strumpet in the south of France. Who's paying for that? So what better reason to get over to Bitterman's this weekend? Visit our pharmacy department. Dads, you'll find everything you need for your back, aching knees and joints, headaches, teeth, breath, nose, hair, inflammations, aggravations. Grads, you don't need a pharmacy, do you? You need a job. $35,000 to major in general studies. You know what you call someone who knows a little bit about everything but is good at nothing? A loser. That's right. That's what you call them. Nothing you can buy at Bitterman's that's going to help you with that. Nothing. So, Bitterman's this weekend, huh? Dads, there's a sale. We've got exactly what you need to kick a little sense into your recent grad. It's 100% off because Bitterman's understands, dads. Oh, yeah. It's tough, reinforced, has leather grips, comes in three bright colors, including puce, and will deliver 150 volts to any couch or lazy boy, launching your grad straight toward an unlimited future of employment and promise. Oh, yeah. Hits. Hits. Fire! From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, the city... 
you the Big Gulp Espresso. It's Livewire, and now your host, who always shops at Bitterman's, and that may be part of her problem, Courtney Hameister. show for you tonight. Our first guest tonight recently created a retrospective on the life of voice actor Mel Blanc and will illuminate us on that. Judy Margles from the Oregon Jewish Museum is here. Yes, we also have an author whose most recent book, In the Garden of Beasts, hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list just this week. Eric Larson is with us tonight. We're very excited. And our musical guest tonight is here with her brand new record, Alila Diane and Wild Divine are with us. But first, please meet the members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, the beautiful Trisha Ferguson, our siren of sound, Pat Janowski, and as usual, poet Scott Poole, author of The Cheap Seats, will sit in our audience and in the course of just a single hour, the amount of time it takes a slam poet to come up with a rhyme for bottomless pit of student loans. Scott writes an entire poem that encompasses what we've learned over the course of the show. So welcome, Scott Poole, and get to writing. We can't do any of it without our extraordinary house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. I felt like I was starring in my own spy movie. Spaghetti Western. Uh, tonight, we would like to welcome all you listeners in the Seattle-Tacoma Puget Sound area who are listening on KUOW2 and KXOT 91.7. We are very excited to be broadcasting there because we love Seattle and Tacoma. We love your dome. And uh, Puget Sound, we have always been fans of complex estuarine systems of interconnected marine waterways and basins, and you guys are our favorite estuary. <laughs> so, welcome, KUOW2 and KXOT. Before we get to the show, just a little bit about me. Uh, I was planning to see a movie for the first time in a while last week, and I really wanted to see a comedy. So my date and I were trying to decide between Bridesmaids and The Hangover 2. Uh, I know, we're very classy. And I said, but I said to him, you know, really? <laughs> the Hangover 2? And, you know, I didn't want to offend him, but I said, you know, uh, that movie has a bunch of men in it. Uh, and as we all know, men can't be funny. <laughs> I mean... I think they're cute when they're playing like the boyfriend or the wacky sidekick or whatever, but uh, it's not like men can carry a whole movie by themselves. <laughs> that is, that's just absurd. I mean, there are some. I mean, I guess you'd call them like dude movies where they're all like talking about dude stuff and doing dude stuff, like walking around and getting into cars and reinforcing the pre-existing paradigm and things. I mean, you know the movies that I'm talking about, right? Like, uh, like The Godfather... Goodfellas, Octopussy, Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, Die Harder, Die Even Harderer, uh, The Bourne Redundancy, Batman, Superman, 
Spider-Man and Aquaman, the tuna conspiracy, uh, 12 angry men, 13 sort of annoyed men, few good men, men who stare at goats, men of honor, grumpy old men, X-Men and G-Men, men in black, children of men, and those magnificent men and their flying machines, and made men, and Fist of Fury, movies like that. You know those movies, right? I mean, I think that they do fine when they're in their dude movies, but then when they try to be funny, it's just awkward. Like, Kevin James in Paul Blart Mall Cop? Ugh. Adam Sandler in Click? Do you remember that movie? And Dane Cook in Life? Like, just walking around in life is not funny? But maybe it's just that men weren't socialized to be funny like women are. I mean, maybe there, maybe there aren't enough men in power at the big movie studios or enough male directors. <laughs> maybe, you know what? Maybe it starts at Harvard, which according to Tina Fey is where all the best comedy writers come from. Are there enough male professors at Harvard encouraging young men to try to be writers? I doubt it, you guys. I mean, <laughs> male professors? <laughs> come on, it's like an oxymoron. <laughs> Anyway, I don't know what the problem is or where it started, but I guess since they're trying so hard, we should really try to support them in their efforts. So this weekend, support a movie with men in it. And it, and it might be hard to watch, but go to one where they're trying to be funny. I mean, nothing is going to change until we buck the system and we support those scrappy funny men. Funny men is, of course, in quotes because they're not really funny. <laughs> this weekend, it's the hangover two for me. And then I'll definitely see Bridesmaids, because as we all know, women are hilarious. Well, our first guest tonight recorded her first record at 19 years old, and since then she's recorded five more, including two 10-inch vinyl records and The Pirate's Gospel, which went gold in France. Her latest record, Alila Diane and Wild Divine, was recorded in Venice, California with producer Scott Litt, who's also worked with The Replacements. He's worked with R.E.M., Patti Smith. Please welcome Alila Diane and the Wild Divine to Livewire. Ela 
sacred to burn, to burn. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, for our radio audience, she is wearing a stunning gold lame, <laughs> shruggy type business. Gold cape. I love it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so you wrote some of the songs on this album with your husband. I did, And yeah. this was, I read that this was the first time that you've ever written collaboratively with anybody. How did that transition work out um, for you? I think it just kind of started happening. Um, Tom and I, you know, hang out a lot. We're around each other and... <laughs> He's been in the band for years, and we, we kind of just started writing songs together. I don't know. <laughs> and how was that different for you? I mean, did you um, discover stuff about your own songwriting in that process? I think that it was really nice for me because he would come up with the chord progressions and be playing the guitar, and that, and that, that really freed me up to come up with the melodies and the lyrics kind of separately from, from the chords, and I wouldn't be kind of stressed out about playing the guitar part while I was singing so I think that I was able to come up with different types of melodies. Well, also, uh, both your father, Tom Menig, and your husband are in your band. Normally we say bands are like families, but your band is your family. It's <laughs> an actual family, yeah. yes. <laughs> so what are some of the benefits of that? Well, it, it's really nice to be kind of surrounded by the people that, that I love the most uh, when we're traveling around, because the road is not always easy. So it's nice to have a really good support network and get along with everybody. Mm -hmm. so it's really Any nice downside place. to it? Um, well, it's not... <laughs> I mean, if you can imagine being in a van with your dad every day for... <laughs> we're, we're just now leaving on a, on a U.S. tour, and it's, it's through July, so it's really like a month long. Mm -hmm. Every day in the van for, you know, seven hours, yeah. nine hours, and then playing a show. So I, my new thing is I'm trying to be nicer to my dad because I get, I get short with him sometimes. <laughs> That's good. That's a good goal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe my husband too. I should be nice to him as well. <laughs> yeah. These are, these are definitely good goals for you. <laughs> well, there's probably, it's like, we're not going to see a VH1 behind the music on this where you've, you know, she, then she spiraled into drugs and alcohol because oh, it's not going to happen. Your dad's on the bus. Yeah. Well, Honestly, I have to look after him. <laughs> <laughs> so. Right. 
Yeah. Um, well, you're going to come back and sing another song for us. What's the second song you're going to sing later in the show? The second song is called Rising Greatness. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It was Thank beautiful. You. Alila Diane, everybody. <laughs> thanks. Music tonight brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Good Seed Killer Light. You know how in the bad seed, that weird girl, the pigtails, did all that mean stuff? Well, this is the opposite of that. Nothing but whole grains, omega-3s, and fiber. Man, that girl was weird. Dave's Killer Bread, just say no to bread on drugs. And you wanted to see me? Ron, come in and take a seat. Sup? Ron, this is the hardest job a supervisor has, and there's just no easy way to say it, so I'm just gonna come out and say it. We're letting you go. You're firing me? And I'm stunned, just stunned to hear you say that. I didn't see this coming. That's part of the problem. You should have. You really should have. I should have? Well, why are you firing me? Well, it's not for one thing. It's for... Well, hang on, and I can tell you the exact number here. Uh, 734 things. You made a lot of mistakes here, Ron. And I am the best employee you got. Ron, you're the worst. You're worse than the guy who we didn't know who couldn't speak English, worked half a day before breaking the toilet in the men's room, and disappeared with all the manila envelopes. Mm. He was better than you. His name was Leon. No, it wasn't. Ron, you show up late, you don't do your work, and you waste my time and others with ideas that just aren't going to fly. Always late, and I work a flex schedule. No, you don't. We don't have those here. It's of my own design, and I do my work. My day is filled with writing reports and memos and emailing clients. Ron, you're the landscaper. You're not even supposed to have a desk or be inside. Well, I made a desk out of two abandoned desks. I created a super desk. I need it for all the imagineering that I do. I'm sorry, come again? Imagineering? It's a term I picked up from the folks at Disney. I like to think of myself as an imagineer. Okay, well that's why I'm firing you, because you are not an imagineer, you are a landscaper. Well, why can't I be both? Because you're not doing any of the landscaping. You're in here doing God knows what, and I'm pretty sure you're filming some of it. Well, I'm doing a sort of video blog about my day-to-day life. Sort of a hybrid reality show mixed with the humor of sitcom with the real-world power and honesty of a Law & Order SVU. What? What? Law & Order SVU? Yes, I am fully prepared to investigate sexually-based offenses. You never know when one might occur. I'm a big fan of iced tea. Okay, Ron, you've got to go. And we can fight this. We'll take this right to the top. I am the top. I'm not going to fight me. That's what they want you to make me believe. But Anne, the work I'm doing here is valuable. Your work? Well, let's look at some of your work, shall we? Um, I have some memos issued by you. Let's see. January 23rd. I saw this great movie last night where the bad guy in the movie tried to make another Christmas holiday in March and called it Christmas 2. This is a great idea because people love Christmas and you can make money at Christmas time. Now, Ron, how on earth is that pertinent to what we do here? Read between the lines, Anne. What do you think I've been doing between 2 and 4 p.m. every Thursday? 
Yes, I've been watching a movie, but I'm scanning those movies for potential business opportunities. Christmas, too? We could steal that idea and make millions. Hell, my idea for Sally, the Christmas 2 spirit of forgiveness and retail solutions, is a merchandising gold mine. We sell cat litter wholesale to pet stores, Ron. We are not in the position to start a new holiday. We just sell litter. That's all. You are the guy who cuts the grass and prunes the shrubs in front of the building. And if I'm not being appreciated here, I'll leave. I may have no choice. You don't have a choice. Well, people are not going to like this. People are going to follow me right out that door. No, they won't. Everyone's gone home for the day. Anne, are you saying that you'll join me? No. Don't be afraid, Anne. Take my hand and we'll leave together. The man can't hold us down. I am the man. This is my business and I am firing you. I am not going with you. This is just like Jerry Maguire. No, it's not. Not even a little bit. It is. I am just like Tom Cruise and you're Renee Zellenmengers. Oh, that's not her name. Okay, get out, Ron. Okay, fine. I'm leaving. Well, farewell, office. I'll see you after my vacation. This vacation is permanent. Go away. Okay, one last thing. Can I get a reference from you? I think there may be a position opening up here in Imagineering, and I want to apply for it. So I think I know what it takes, and uh, the boss is a pushover, so... Oh, my God. What? You're listening to Livewire Radio with music, conversation, and comedy. We're so well-rounded, the ratio of our circumference to our diameter is 3.14. Coming up... Some rare glimpses into the life of voice actor Mel Blanc, author Eric Larson, and poet Scott Poole. We'll be right back. Yeah. 
As you heard, that was the voice of actor Mel Blanc in an audio postcard he sent to Portland in 1972 to celebrate the 50th anniversary of KGW, which was the station where he started his career. Uh, this summer, both the Oregon Jewish Museum and the Oregon Cartoon Institute are doing retrospectives on Blank's career. And here to talk about Mel's life is a newly minted Mel Blank expert, executive director of the Oregon Jewish Museum, Judy Margul. Please join me in welcoming Judy. Welcome to the show, Judy. Thank you so much. So now you probably know more about Mel Blanc than you ever imagined that you might. I work with a team of people. We all probably know the same amount. Mm -hmm. Great team. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, you were, you're doing this retrospective because Mel Blanc grew up in Oregon. What kinds of things did you find out about how he started off in show business? You know, he wrote an autobiography. It was called That's Not All Folks. And he said something so poignant right at the beginning of the biography. He said... As a child, I heard voices. And that really speaks to his entire character. He grew up in an area of Portland, very ethnic area, and he heard all sorts of voices and sounds on the street, and that was incorporated into everything he did. And he was in some, some comedy performance groups that, that performed live in, around Portland, right? Absolutely. He was in a minstrel show with the South Parkway Minstrels, and he did a lot of um, work as a kid. He was a, a lackadaisical student. He much preferred the stage to school. Mm -hmm. And then he actually started his own radio show later in his career. How long, when he, did that happen? He did. He actually had a radio show before that. And he was 19 when he got into radio. He was on a show called The Hoot Owls, which was a KGW show sponsored by the Oregonian. That was all amateur performers. They did a, a weekly show. It aired on Friday night. And they did comedy skits, elephant jokes, banjo tunes, just a variety of things. And it was a very, very popular show. Yeah. And probably the beginning of the elephant joke genre, I would imagine. It very well could have been. Back and then. also gave him a chance to use many voices. And then he went to Hollywood for a couple of years and came back and started his own radio show, which was called Cobweb and Nuts. He did this on KEX. He did it with his wife. It was a daily show, and those days daily meant Monday through Saturday. Wow. So Sunday was his only day off. It aired from uh, 11 p.m. to midnight. He wrote the show and voiced all the parts with his wife. He actually went to KEX and said, I can't do this. I need some help. I need other people to do the voices. They said, can't, no can do. So he actually voiced all the parts. Which, and he did this for how long? Uh, two years. So it had to have been huge in terms of how successful he was later on at Warner Brothers. He also did other work at the time because he wasn't making enough money. Sure. So he had many, many jobs. Well, I, I was luckily, lucky enough to come to the museum, and you actually had there a script from uh, the, it's Cobwebs and Nuts, from the Cobwebs Indeed. and Nuts show. And uh, because they evidently didn't record these shows back then, they, they just broadcast them. So there's no recordings? No extant recordings. Yeah. No. And we really did research. We went to the Library of Congress, actually, hoping that they would have something. Nothing exists. Yeah. We wanted to just read a little bit from the Cobwebs and Nuts uh, script that you had there. And Sean McGrath is going to read the Mel Blanc parts. Uh, Sean, do you want to set this up a little bit? Uh, sure. Yeah. He's, uh, it looks like it's a, a duo with him and Estelle for most of this stuff, uh, sort of clever, fast-paced kind of dialogue. And I think that it's somewhat of a hospital scene for this, for this episode. 
Become classy and use words that will keep your friends guessing. For example, if someone should kick you in the shins, don't say, ouch, my shins. Simply smile and whisper, hmm, a nasty blow in the tibia. People will respect you for your intelligence and they'll place chairs and footstools in dark hallways so that you will trip over them and entertain them by calling out the names of the bones in the body that ache. <laughs> Be the life of the party. Learn what to call what when whatchamacallit gets hit, kicked, or stepped on. Just a moment, Doctor. Suppose I was just plain old kicked. What would you call it? Well, I'd call it a good idea. <laughs> Say, let us meander into the appendix ward where the ladies are organizing a glee club. Before I was operated on, I was more than unpopular, but since my 12th operation, I've been made president of three clubs. Four hearts. Four spades. Well, I'll double the four spades. Ooh, redouble. Well, sorry, folks. We'll have to call timeout while we play this hand of bridge. Just to keep you from kibitzing, we'll play some music so you can dance instead. And that is Cobb. And that is Mel Thank you, Sean McGrath. I, I guarantee that Mel Blank would have loved that. Uh, well, it, it, it's so, it was amazing to be able to see these. Did you have more of these scripts there? Well, I got them from his son who lives in Santa Monica, and he has many scripts. So once he started, how did he, how did he actually get started at Warner Brothers in California? He left Portland in 1935 and kept knocking on the doors of Looney Tunes and Mary Melodies, Leon Schlesinger's studio, trying to get a, a voice part. And finally was successful in 1936. So after about a year and a half, he got his first part in a cartoon called Picador Porky. He played Porky the Pig. Um, I just have to mention that for a nice Jewish kid from Portland, Oregon, the irony of playing a pig was not lost on Mel Blanc. Um, and that, he did a really good job. He was paid $200 for the cartoon, and that opened a lot of doors. He was able to get a lot of voice work after that. Right, right. And then um, he also, how, how did, how did uh, Bugs Bunny come about for him? So, as I understand, Bugs, the, the rabbit, there was a rabbit as early as 1938, but it wasn't really till 1940, a film called A Wild Hare, that starred Mel Blanc, that he really formed the voice of Bugs Bunny. Um, it was the first cartoon where the rabbit came out of the hole and said, what's up, Doc? So that was the beginning of the Bugs and he, Bunny. And the rabbit wasn't originally named Bugs? It was originally named Happy Rabbit, mm -hmm. and then it was... Snore! <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, again, the, the sort of anecdotal history is that Mel didn't like the name Happy Rabbit or the name Hare. He really liked Bugs. Bugs was for Bugs Hardaway. Mel actually named Bugs Bunny. Well, and I, th I think that we have a PSA with Bugs. Is this starring Bugs? You do. That uh, evidently <laughs> Bugs was not a fan of drugs. Uh, do, can we play that clip? This is Bugs Bunny. I've been a pop star all my life. Like, uh, man, I've seen it all. Along the way, I've heard of some folks getting mixed up with hard drugs, like a smack and downers. Now let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with sharing a good, healthy carrot with some pals before a show. But stay away from those bad, hard drugs, unless you want to wind up asking me, what's up, Doc? I love that. What, do you have an idea what year those were? I actually, I couldn't figure out the year, but it had to be the late 60s, early 70s. Right, because he mentions there's something just hilarious about Bugs Bunny talking about smack. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I so appreciate your coming and talking to us all about uh, Mel Blanc. For, for people who live in the Oregon area, the Oregon Jewish Museum exhibit runs until September, and both the Oregon Jewish Museum and Oregon Cartoon Institute have speaking series through the summer. For more information, Oregon Jewish Museum at ojm.org and Oregon Cartoon Exhibit at OregonCartoonInstitute.com. Thanks so much for joining us. You're Judy welcome. Margles. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Livewire Radio. Did you know Livewire is on Twitter? Well, we are. We tweet. Sometimes we eat sandwiches. Maybe we'll tweet about that. <laughs> if you want to know more about our sandwiches, follow our social media shenanigans on Twitter at LiveWire Radio. On the morning of October 4th, 2010, Ronald Johnson sat down at the same work terminal he sat down at every workday. Ronald was a simple man soft-handed and sallow-skinned from years of harsh fluorescent lights and mild office work. He was not blessed with much imagination, but what he discovered there on his screen shocked him to his very core. Diary entry, October 4th, 9.15 a.m. Checked office email, checked personal email, checked Facebook, checked catsfallingoffthings.com, checked Facebook again, checked Twitter, Twitter didn't work. Check Twitter. Twitter didn't work. Check Twitter. Twitter didn't work. Twitter, portentous pause, was down. From high rises of New York City and the coffee shops of Portland, Oregon, to the strip malls of Arkansas and the regular malls of Ohio, in the north and the south and the east and the west, no one could get on to Twitter, and nothing would ever be the same. Professor of Contemporary Microhistory, Lancaster Dodd. It was a confusing time, a dark time. I'm not sure if anyone really has a handle on what happened. But we have their letters. People. People started writing to each other, trying, trying to make sense of this new world they were cast into. October 4th, 9.16 a.m. My dearest at Patricia Hart's Glee 85, I cannot comprehend what has happened. The refresh button and implement once I counted on as dearest to me has become nothing more than a vexation. Click as I might, it brings no relief. Twitter is down, though I can scarcely believe it. Even as I write these words, Ronald Johnson. October 4th, 9.17 a.m. My implacable at RonDude44. It seems an era has passed since I saw your last tweet, my darling. I find myself wondering what the ladies are wearing this season. What cats have fallen off of what things? What people think about the new episode of Glee? Do they like it? Do they not like it? I fear I shall never know. Patricia Blackburn. The outage spread across the country. In Bristow, Oklahoma, Jason Statler had just harvested some wheat. I just harvested some wheat, he said aloud to no one. <laughs> In Kennebunkport, Maine, Mary Davenport ate a pretty good sandwich. Not great, but pretty good. 
Her thoughts on that sandwich would go unrecorded. October 4th, 9.20 a.m. It has been more than five minutes. I have given up hope of seeing the end of this. Of Jenny in accounting. We have heard nothing about her or her Pomeranian since yesterday. We have given her up for lost. Provisions of Mountain Dew are running dangerously low. Please send help. Ronald Johnson. October 4th, 9.22 a.m. Shot another looter. He had a wild look in his eye and spoke of trying to find that good Thai place. They say those 140 characters were chains that bound the spirit. What is my spirit to do about finding that good Thai place? Am I to trust the providence of Yelp reviews? The notion is absurd. Patricia Blackburn. The outage lasted for more than an hour. Ronald Johnson would not see the end of it. He died of consumption at 10.12. Mary Davenport threw herself into the sea. Jason Statler would make a killing selling black market twit pics, but was later devoured by wild dogs. Patricia Blackburn would lose a leg to Trenchfoot, but went on to become the founder of Cats Climbing Onto Things and then later falling off of things after doing something cute to a piano.com. Their stories have never been told until now. Ken Burns proudly presents The Great Fail. Part one in a 34-part series. Next on Livewire, the author of five books, three of which are New York Times bestsellers. The other two are also very good. His last bestseller was Devil in the White City. It was on the hardcover and paperback list for a combined total of over three years. And the film rights were recently optioned by Leonardo DiCaprio. He was a guy who was in a movie about a boat you may have heard of. Uh, he has written, he's written for the Wall Street Journal. He's written for Time Magazine, The New Yorker, and of course, the Bucks County Courier Times. His most recent book, In the Garden of Beasts, Love, Terror, and an American Family in Hitler's Berlin, has already hit number one on the bestseller list. Please welcome Eric Larson to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you very much. It's terrifying. <laughs> is it? Being here. Being here. Is it? Yeah. It reminds me of my first high school play. Really? What, uh, what did you play in your first I, high school play? I was so play? terrified, I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember. Well, I'm sure you were quite good. Uh, so you have written about the 1893 Chicago Expo, the Galveston Hurricane of 1900, Marconi, what drew you to the story of an American ambassador in 1933 Berlin? Uh, the glib answer is really that nothing did, but here's what happened. I, I did not wake up one day thinking, I want to write about Nazi Germany. It's not anything that any sane person actually does. But <laughs> for me, the idea process is very difficult. I start with a blank slate every time. And just to get my mind started, I went to a bookstore and I just started looking at books on the shelves. 
So a book had always been on my want to read list, 1,200 pages, tiny type, a little intimidating, no photographs. William Shears, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. I read that book and I loved it. Light and summer reading. <laughs> light summer reading. It was, a, yeah, it was a, actually it was a hot August day, as a matter of fact. But, but the thing that appealed to me about this book um, I, was when I suddenly realized that William Shear had actually been in Berlin from 1934 on. He knew these people, Hitler, Goering, Goebbels, and so forth, before they became the monsters that we all know them to be. So I started thinking, well, what would that be like to try to capture that world through the point of view of those alive at the time? And that's when I started thinking, okay, I need characters. Started reading widely, and, and that's when I stumbled across this, this very interesting character, William E. Dodd, mild-mannered professor of history at the University of Chicago. Had no business being a, a, an ambassador to anything, let alone Nazi Germany, but was appointed, was, was picked by Roosevelt for reasons that nobody really can understand to become the first ambassador to Nazi Germany. What really hooked me, though, was his daughter. His daughter, Martha. His daughter, Martha, 24 years old. Um, you know, I'm the father of three daughters, and let me tell you, I'm so glad that I did not have a daughter like Martha. But I'm very glad that she existed because from a narrative point of view, she's just wonderful. She slept with everybody. You know, it was just... <laughs> including some Nazis. Well, including the first chief of the Gestapo, Rudolf Diels. But, you know, a lot of people slept with Rudolf Diels. He was sort of a... He was considered a, a, a hottie also, even though he's really grotesquely scarred, actually, from the, from the cheek, cheeks down. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you talk a little bit about Dodd and how he sort of existed in Berlin? How, how, because he, if he certainly felt like he didn't fit very well. I don't know that he felt he didn't fit, but he certainly did not fit. I mean, he was, he was this mild-mannered guy from the Midwest, um, and he went to, uh, he went to Berlin um, uh, hell-bent on, on setting a kind of a, an interesting model for, for the Nazis. He was going to be a model of, of, of good old American yeoman frugality to the point where he even brought his, his beat-up old farm Chevrolet with him to Germany. This is what he went to diplomatic events in. Yeah, he was very, and he was very frugal, and he, and he wasn't paid a lot. He was a professor. Yeah, it's kind of like the Beverly Hillbillies in Berlin, you know, at, at, on some level. On some, yeah. I don't want to make too much light of it, but yeah. Well, and he was writing letters back to President Roosevelt, right? and uh, people seemed to not really be listening to him. Yeah, he was, writing, he was writing dispatches, confidential dispatches, back to the State Department saying, you know, you know these guys are nuts, and this is, this is a horror show, and, and so forth. And all the State Department was interested in was collecting the German debt to American creditors. That was their primary, their primary goal. So it was, yeah, it, it was like Paul Revere riding through a town where everybody had earplugs. You know, that's yeah. what it was like. It was interesting to me. It seemed like uh, Hitler had said many times, this was 1933, uh, many times that he wanted to exterminate the Jews, and it felt like people just kept saying, oh, he doesn't really mean it. Why yeah. didn't people believe him? Totally unclear, although really in, in 1933 he was not making a big show of wanting to exterminate the Jews. Remember, this is early. This is not a Holocaust book. This is not a World War II book. But there was a very interesting conversation. It was Dodd's second conversation with Hitler, and it's very telling for a couple of reasons. First of all, Dodd tried to find common ground with Hitler on the so-called Jewish problem. He's like, you know, we have a problem in America, too, but we've chosen to solve it in a more humane fashion by, you know, quotas and all that kind of thing. Hitler doesn't buy it. Hitler loses it completely. When it came to the subject of Jews, he always lost it. And he, he just gets totally inflamed, and he, he cries out to Dodd. He says, if the Jews keep this up, I will put an end to all of them. And this is significant because this is 1933. This is long before the Holocaust. 
And and Dodd wrote a letter. He he wrote a, a long dispatch back to back to the State Department. But you know, the, it, it, it's a it was a very complicated, nuanced time. It's very hard to look back with what we all know and say, God, what were you doing? You know, what were you thinking? Um, and yet, that's that's a source of, of, from my perspective, of real narrative tension. Is because it's, it's like it's like when you have a babysitter in a horror movie, and mm-hmm. you know you hear the growling in the basement, and she goes down into the basement, and you know you should not go down into that basement. <laughs> so. Yeah, we do know. Looking back, the number of resources that you used in this book is extraordinary. You did a significant amount of research, and in some cases went to the, to the Library of Congress and places, oh, yeah. and actually got to see Martha's papers, original yeah. papers, things like that. You use letters and diaries. I'm interested as, as a researcher, how do you deal with the fact that people lie to each other in letters? No, I, I hope that they don't lie too much. That's my problem. Um, you know, people do lie a lot, and, and it's very interesting. In fact, in fact, <laughs> it's funny you mention that because Martha wrote a memoir um, called Through Embassy Eyes, and there is an entire part of her life that she left out of that memoir that only becomes evident when you go into her papers and you realize that there was this other guy, the true love of her life who existed in that time, Boris, Boris Vinogradov, the mysterious, tall, gorgeous Russian. Yeah, so, so it's, hard, it's hard. The way you do it is you triangulate. You get as much material as you can, and you try to sort of look, okay, does this make, does this make sense? Does this make sense? This makes sense. Ooh, this is a steamy love letter. This is good. You know, that's, that's how you just kind of compare. Because you are getting information from so many different sources, do you have experiences where you can't tell what the truth is of the experience oh, you can, or there, the event? There, there's always an issue of what's true and what's not, and you, you simply have to weigh the information and, and decide what's correct and, 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 and what isn't. What is it about historical events that appeals to you as a writer as opposed to writing about things that are going on right now? <laughs> I've been a journalist for a long time, um, and I just got weary of, of, of talking to living people. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. Was there anything that you discovered in the research for this particular book that surprised you or changed the story that you thought was happening? Oh, just about everything that I came across surprised me. I mean, I, th- I think there, I, I certainly share this. I think there's a tendency of people to look at this period, 1933 through 1945, as one homogeneous block of horror and war, when in fact it, it, there were distinct periods and phases. And the things that happened in 1933, 34, for example, you know, here you have you have the Dodds hanging out with Josef Goebbels, who we all know became one of the most evil people in, in the history of the world. But Josef Goebbels at this time was coveted as a party guest because he had a great sense of humor. It was a vicious sense of humor, but he had a great sense of humor. Um, I, was, I was totally delighted uh, with, well, delighted in a perverse way, with, with the details about Hermann Goering, who was essentially a 350-pound lethal nine-year-old. You know, because I, he would dress up in, in, in uniforms of his own design, be it like a gigantic 350-pound wood sprite to, you know, this guy. And, and at one point, one of my favorite moments is when 
when um, Dodd's wife, Maddie, is attending a, a concert at the Italian Embassy, and, and you know, something like 100 people are there, and they're all sitting down in these ornate little gold chairs, and Hermann Goering sits right in front of her in one of these chairs, fits himself into this thing with what she describes as his heart-shaped rump, and she spent the whole concert terrified that his chair was going to break and, and he was going to come falling back into her lap. <laughs> well, there's a lot of wonderful part. There's there's parties, and you see that there are there are Jewish writers who are at parties with right. with Goebbels and and these people, and and sort of joking around with them at this time in, in '33 before it got really ugly. Well, and, and interestingly, I mean, well, first of all, it had been really ugly, and then it, it, from '33 through '34, things had really fallen off. Uh, in fact, one of the most skeptical. Folks in the State Department, George Messer Smith, um, Dodd's general uh, consul general in Berlin, had written back to the State Department saying that actual violence had fallen to almost nothing, but it had become much more perverse because people were being forced out of jobs or were essentially being made non citizens. But there were some really quirky things. For example, um, the Jewish newspaper in Berlin was allowed to continue publishing, even though other newspapers had been shut down and changed ownership over to, to the Nazi, members of the Nazi party. So very, very quirky time. Well, very in, in Rome, is that how it's pronounced? Rom. Rom. Ernst Rom. He was high up in Hitler's... Yeah, he was... He was and Hitler. he was a gay man. <laughs> yes, absolutely. In fact, in fact, outed publicly, and he was you know, one, supposed to be one of the models of this Aryan regime. Um, Ernst, Ernst Rom was the head of the stormtroopers, um, which was sort of essentially a million, two million man um, paramilitary organization that had been very useful to Hitler in, in his rise to power. Hitler and Rom were good friends until about mid, mid to late 1933 when Rom wanted a whole lot more power. And I had, I had not, I, I don't know where I was living, I guess under a rock or something, but I had known that there was this conflict between Hitler and his, and his great friend, which then exploded at the, at, in, in the summer of 1934 into what constitutes the really quite horrific climax of, of the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, little dark. Little, little dark. dark, the book. I'm assuming that your next book is going to be about the Partridge family. You know what? It, it might be. This was too dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read that, that you uh, that this this kind of affected you a little bit. To it write did. About. It did. I, I wound up sort of with a with a low grade depression. And when the book was done, I was, I heard the birds twittering. I was happy again. Mm-hmm. You know, it was yeah. Do you have an idea of what your next book is no, going to be? No, no. I'm back in what my my publicist and friend refers to as the the dark country of no ideas. <laughs> so. Well, it's probably lovely there for a while. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's been wonderful having you here. The book is In the Garden of Beasts, Love, Terror, and an American Family in Hitler's Berlin. The author is Eric Larson. Thanks so much for joining us, Eric. That was Eric Larson, and you're listening to Livewire Radio, or the Livewire Radio Podcast, or Livewire Live, streaming on Cascadia.fm. There are so many ways to listen to Livewire now, it's difficult to escape us. So don't try. Find out more at LivewireRadio.org. We'll be right back.
Ladies and gentlemen, once again, please welcome Alila Diane and Wild Divine. promised the man who has been toiling away this whole hour. Please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. 
What I learned tonight is if there's a group I'm sick of thinking about, it's the Nazis. <laughs> I know it's one of those things you don't have to worry about much anymore, like bear attacks or trench foot. But still people lay awake at night and do include those things in their worry list. Why do they think, driving to work, I could be attacked by Nazis. It could happen, or bears. I could be attacked by bears. What if I'm attacked by both at the same time? Holy crap. It's just like that fascinating plot of one of those movies made by men. <laughs> but if the Nazis and bears were attacking me at the same time, wouldn't the bears also attack the Nazis? Which portion of the Nazis would be fending off the bears and which portion would be attacking me? And what if the bears had trench foot? Could that spread? There's so much to freaking consider. <laughs> I should spend my time worrying about more pertinent things like the chance of getting hit by a truck. Okay, that makes me feel better. Don't worry about Nazis. Worry about getting hit by a truck. But what if the truck was being driven by a Nazi? <laughs> Damn it. That could happen. Wasn't there a trucker show in the 70s called BJ and the Bear? Damn it, what if BJ was a Nazi? What if the bear actually was a bear? Or was it an ape? I can't remember now. Did they attack people in that show? Did they believe in genocide and conquering Poland from the cab of their Freightliner semi? I can't remember. Why can't I just have a nice night of fun dreaming of Lil Diane's music and confetti and Bugs Bunny telling me to stay off smack? I want my dreams to be like someone doing the polka in your living room, fun like Mel Blanc practicing Porky Pig in the next bathroom stall and you not wanting to interrupt him with your noises. But I can't get away from these irrational fears like I'm deathly afraid I'm suddenly going to be asked to play banjo. Why? And way too many people have watched Glee, so they're going to expect me to fiddle through the first couple of notes, but then I'll suddenly be in a full-blown, flawless version of Foggy Mountain Breakdown, and right in the middle of totally screwing it up, we'll all be attacked by Nazis and bears driving trucks, and then Twitter will go down, and no one will know how I bravely peed my pants and then killed them all by whacking them with my useless laptop. No one will know. Thanks to our guests tonight, Judy Margles, Eric Larson, Alila Diane, and Wild Divine. The Mutton Shops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Steve Berlin. Special thanks to Dave Dahl. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Dave's Killer Bread. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as you, fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our senior producer is Robin Tannenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The Faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Sean McGrath, and house poet Scott Poole, performers Tyler Hughes, Trisha Ferguson, and Siren of Sound, Pachanowski. Our guest writer this week was Jason Rouse. Our recording engineer is Jonathan Newsom. House Sound by Jeffrey Hilton Simmons. Production management by Drew Flint. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Vondrelli and Ralph Huntley. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is your announcer, Tyler Hughes, saying good night. And to all of our vampire listeners, good morning. Up and at them.
Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.